You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, a longtime MMA journalist, novelist, and podcaster. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, did you ever have beef so hot that you wanted to fight a guy in the buffet line? Did you ever have an animosity for someone bubbling so fiercely that when you saw them standing in line at the buffet at the Palms of a Sunday morning, you were like, you know what? This is the time. I'm going to go get me some right now from this guy. You know, I can't say that I've personally ever experienced that kind of beef. Because, for one thing, in the line at the buffet, that's the time you need to get your mind right. Yeah, you, you're focused on other things. Yeah, you have to come up with a plan of attack for the buffet. that you Because you're going to throw down 25 30 bucks on a Las Vegas casino buffet. You don't want to roll in there just aimless, just no. throwing stuff on your plate willy-nilly. That's the last thing you want. You need a game plan. You need a strategy. You need to know what you're going to do. And you're standing there in your, your cargo shorts and your flip-flops. Having just come down from the room. Maybe where, a little hazy from the night before. Yeah. That's the last time you want to get into some physical altercations. Especially, Chad, especially if you just fought a man in a cage professionally the night before. You're going to go straight for the prime rib station? Do you want to hit up the enchilada station? You're going to use your first trip around the buffet as a fact-finding mission? Yeah. Figure out what you like and then make a more targeted approach the second time around? Are you going to give yourself permission to start with dessert because fuck it, you're on vacation? These are the questions you should be working out in your mind, not seeking out conflict with your fellow man. Poor Colby Covington doesn't even have his gimmick on. His Banana Republic (laughs) blazer is in the room. He doesn't have his interim title belt with him. He's not wearing his MAGA hat. He's wearing his American Top Team t-shirt. Yeah. A pair of shorts, probably some flip-flops. A clear sign that he thought he was off the clock. Off the clock. This is his personal time. He, you know, it's one thing, like, a guy can't even enjoy a buffet at the Palms. That's, that is the deal with the devil that Colby Covington has made. And I'm not going to say that that part of it doesn't feel a little fitting, that maybe the, the price Colby Covington has to pay for being Colby Covington is that he needs to keep his head on a swivel even when he's in line for the buffet. But I just imagine, Chad, one of these out-of-towner tourist rubes, your typical Vegas sidewalk slow walkers. Little old lady just trying to get, get the early bird special. She's come in from Kansas. She's enjoying her, her week in Vegas. She's sitting there. She's, she's getting in line for the buffet. Uh, a melee breaks out, and she's like, who are these people? What is going on? Oh, they're professional fighters. What? Are they just like low-level thugs? No, no, no. Uh, top of the sport in the very tip-top organization, and they are both at the top of their division in that organization. And here they are at the buffet trying to mix it up. Oh, who's the guy who keeps chirping and uh, escalating things and actually throwing punches? He must be like some just uh, ne'er-do-well hanger-on. Nope. He's the manager. Of the welterweight champion. Managing his way right into a fist fight in the buffet line at the Palms. That's one thing to remember when you see a nice moment. 
where Kamaru Usman's <laughs> in the cage with his daughter. Yes. He's got his welterweight title strapped around his waist. His dad is hugging Dana White like the game show host just said, a new car. Yes. Yes. Touching. It's a nice moment. Made Kamaru Usman seem likable, relatable. Made me feel like, hey, maybe this is a welterweight champion I can get behind. Less than 24 hours later, he's trying to fight a guy in the buffet line at the Palms. Just always handy to keep in mind that you're dealing with a different kind of human being. Yeah. Sport-wide. And while he's trying to fight, there are people shouting out, hey, there are women and kids here. Like, okay, you know, his daughter, yeah, we're going to take very good care of her, but... uh Damn everybody else's kids who are just trying to hang out and get some fucking pancakes at the buffet. No, they, they got to end up getting trampled because we can't stop ourselves from, like, we can't even wait a few months to actually get paid to do this. It's a weird move to take your kids to Vegas, I think. I mean, if I was going to make a list of places where I was going to take my kids on vacation, Vegas would not be in the top 20, I bet. I don't disagree with that, but I feel like we're just, we made a kind of a sharp left turn from the discussion at hand, but yes. Remember, kids, if you want to support the co-main event podcast, you can get your cowboy astronaut cigarette t-shirts and your Dundasso t-shirts over on CottonBureau.com all the time, on demand, whenever you want them. Just head over to CottonBureau.com and support the show by picking up some CME merchandise. We got music again this week from our longtime friend and listener, Ras Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out more over at SoundCloud. SoundCloud. That was, that was hard for me to say. It's almost like I said SoundCloud. Click note to self. Soundclown.com. By soundclown.com as soon as we're done here. Soundcloud.com slash S-T-H-L-M Ross. Stockholm Ross. Ross. Stockholm Ross. I would say Ross. It's supposed to be Ross. Stockholm Ross can get down with SoundCloud, though. So we, we don't really have a business plan yet, but uh, we're going to get that domain. Hey, you having we'll a party? We'll figure out the rest later. You planning a party? You need a SoundCloud to come over? Take care of your DJ and your clowning needs all in one. Or uh, want somebody to call your neighbor up late at night and harass him? SoundClown. SoundClown.com. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, after 26 fights and knocking on the door of immortality, John Jones says he's finally starting to feel like a UFC fighter. So that's a fucking scary thought. And round number two, remember almost everything we said about Woodley versus Usman last week? Yeah, take that back. New stuff this week. And in round number three, Ben Askren's UFC debut went perfectly for everybody except referee Herb Dean and maybe the fans. With a potential rematch on deck, will Funky Ben soon qualify as one of Dana White's favorite mistakes? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Nick Jolly, who writes... In a really stacked card, was really proud of Diego, although the result, like Cody Garbs' loss, probably had a lot to do with the loser, what the loser didn't do right, rather than what the victor did right. That being said, what does the UFC do with someone like Diego, who's been a fantastic servant for the UFC since 2005? Yes, 2000 and friggin' five. Can't throw him to the Wolves, won't contend for a title, or even promote a match uh, for any ranked opponent. Uh, personally, I don't want to see him get in too many wars, like Martin Campman. Uh, Martin Campman bloodbath that's stuck in my memory from 2011 or even get beaten up, but uh, believe he deserves to be looked at believe he deserves to be looked after. Ideally uh, they'd give him a job of some sorts, but only Forrest and big nog seem to be employed by the UFC in ambassador type roles. Now, what should the UFC do? Ben, 
Diego Sanchez goes out there and rolls to an unlikely victory. Maybe unlikely. I don't know, depending on what we thought headed in over Mickey Gall. Second round TKO on the prelim portion of uh, UFC 235 televised on ESPN. I'll tell you what I like about this Diego Sanchez performance. And then maybe we can talk about, you know, what may or may not have been going on with Mickey Gall. And I've said this before on the show. I will say it to my dying breath. Diego Sanchez, the high motor takedown and ground and pound machine can still be a viable guy in the UFC. And he goes out there, wears on Mickey Gall, ends up stopping him at 45 seconds or so before the bell in the second round. I would much, much rather see this version of Diego Sanchez than the taking punches out of my back pocket uh, and, and throwing them bungalows Diego Sanchez any day of the week. In fact, this is the Diego Sanchez that I fell in love with first. <laughs> okay. You know, back yeah. when he first showed up, you know, even a little bit before he showed up on the first season of The Ultimate Fighter, back when he was King of the Cage champion, like, he used to fight like Matt Hughes with a better gas tank. And then somewhere along the line, he fell in love with this brawling style, which has obviously made him super popular and has given him a, a job for life in the UFC, you would think, if he wants it. But if if the if the the goal is win fights and don't take a ton of damage, this is the Diego Sanchez that I want to see. These are his strengths. These are his yes. actual honest to goodness strengths. Yeah, and have been since he got in the game back in, when he was in King of the Cage. Yeah. Prior to the Ultimate Fighter. Yeah. yeah, that that was his whole game plan: is take you down, elbow a hole in your face. And you're right. It also seems like a style that we've seen age better. Just across all divisions in the sport. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you're a wrestler who can control people and if you have great cardio and that doesn't leave you, then you can go a long way with that. And I think also like it helps Diego Sanchez mentally in these kind of fights to know like he's not going to get tired. It's not like, you know, he can go out there. He said his plan against Mickey Gall was I wanted to let him kind of punch himself out early on that he was, his emotions were going to be running high. He was going to really come after after me early and attack, try to put me away. And I knew that was going to wear him out. So I was just kind of trying to get through the first round and then wear him down. And that's exactly what, I mean, that's why I would say take a little issue with the thing of like, it's not that Mickey Gall just fucked up. Right. It's that Diego Sanchez had a plan that was well suited to what Mickey Gall actually did try to do. I mean, you can talk about how much the, the weight cut or whatever affected Mickey Gall. He said he, he passed out during it. So maybe, he was not starting with a 100% gas tank. Who knows? But still, Diego Sanchez had the right plan, and he executed it in there. But it is tough to say, what do you want to do with him next? Because we've talked before about the phenomenon where an aging fighter who's losing a bunch, and then if he wins one, sometimes it's the worst thing that could happen to him. Because then you get you already have this name. The UFC wants to use the name. You get thrown into deeper waters, and you you know you can't just hang around on the prelims if you're got to a point contractually where you're making a bunch of money, they're going to want a return on that investment one way or another, whether they think that it's you who are going to be the guy, or they think that they're going to use you as a stepping stone for the guy. They're not just going to be content to let you hang around and keep you out of trouble forever. So, I mean, I don't, I think you're right that there are some welterweights he beats by taking them down and controlling them. I think though, that if you start putting them up against more experienced fighters in that division, especially it gets dangerous for him. Oh, I agree. And, like, he's not a guy that's going to, like, grapple his way to the welterweight title or anything like that, especially considering the guy who owns the welterweight title right now doesn't seem like he is uh, particularly, uh, 
you know, liable to get wrestled around by Diego Sanchez. But, you know, Diego Sanchez is going to fight as long as he possibly can. He has already done that. We know that that's going to be his life plan moving forward. If I'm one of Diego Sanchez's crew, I'm like, this is the Diego Sanchez we want. We don't want the Martin Campman Diego Sanchez. I want this guy. How much longer do you want that guy? Uh, like two years ago. Okay. Uh, you know, he went on his whole thing about anti-aging and everything afterwards. And I always feel weird when I hear people talk about like anti-aging stuff. Uh, and Diego Sanchez, I believe that this has been a passion of his. And to be 37 yeah, and to be doing as well and to have as many fights in the UFC as he's had to be added. Because look around. Who else from the Ultimate Fighter 1 is around? Nobody. He's the last guy. Well, Chris Liebman is still kind of dipping his toe bare here and boxing. there in, in bare knuckle boxing and tried to fight in Bellator. But other than that, like everybody else is hanging out on the purple couch. Right. <laughs> and he looks good. Like, you know, just he does not look haggard and old and beaten up or anything like that. And also to maintain this kind of enthusiasm for the fight game, like the kind of stuff that we've heard from people talking about their retirements where – Hey, George St. Pierre talking about it. Like, I just don't have that same anger anymore. How could you in your late 30s? I I don't have the same anger anymore. Maybe he's not listening to the same tunes that Diego Sanchez See, is listening to on his way to the gym. So as we learned in his Instagram yeah. post this yeah, past week. That is true. But him talking about like his his passion for anti-aging, I'm like, yes, I believe that maybe you, you and Iceman Wim Hof have figured some things out. <laughs> I also think that those things are probably unpleasant enough on a day-to-day basis that I, I'll just go ahead and age. Yeah. Uh, it's like it's, when you hear people talking about how, like, I won't eat meat and I'll live to 120. I'm like, but to what I end? D- I don't want that. Yeah. I don't want that. Uh, it's a little bit wince-worthy to see Diego Sanchez joking about CTE, is it not? Yeah. During his a, post-fight interview that, that was circulated widely on the internet? That's a devil he should not conjure, even even in jest. Right. Next question is, this week comes to us from hockey great Yarmir Yager. Oh, good to hear from him. So maybe he could give you some tips. I could use them because it's playoff season, Chad. I, I understand. The playoff beard leaves a little something to be desired so far. Listen, when you were the league's leading scorer during uh, the regular season. You don't have to grow the beard. Is that what's up? You don't want to fuck with anything. You want to Obviously, what I was doing was working. I don't want to start mixing things up now in the playoffs. Yeah, you don't want a scruffy beard to get in the way of your slap shot, right? Sure, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll sit here and pretend like I can successfully execute a slap shot. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe that screws up the rotation of your body somehow. There you go. Yarmir Yager writes, Cody Garbs, bruh, what the actual fuck? Can you guys please discourse on the absolute insanity that was Cody Garbrandt throwing his game plan, I'm assuming he actually fucking had one, straight out the fucking window as soon as those murder balls started flying? Ben, while we were watching this fight at your house on Saturday night, Cody Garbrandt, out there against Pedro Munoz before the fight was even over. But well into the ah, fuck it stage of this fight, I chuckled out loud and I said to you, Cody Garbrandt, what the fuck are you doing, man? Yes, I think we were both like, he's going to get himself knocked out. And then he did. And then he did. Four minutes and 52 seconds into the first round, just before the bell, he almost made it. Cody Garbrandt is out here losing fights to Pedro Munoz now. Three in a row. First two to TJ Dillashaw, obviously. Now this loss to Pedro Munoz at UFC 235. Ben, where is the Cody Garbrandt that outdanced Dominic Cruz at UFC 207? Outdanced Dominic fucking Cruz, man. Yeah. And now he's just like, thinks he's fucking Fedor Emelianenko out there. Well, in his defense, he did say afterwards that there was that clash of heads and he said that he was on autopilot after that, and the autopilot in him 
says stand and bang, bro. The autopilot, Cody Garbrandt's personal autopilot, wants you to let him bang. He's Even autopilot. Though, he's going to autopilot his way right out of this sport if he's not careful. I know. He doesn't have the chin to be doing that. And the thing that drives me the most crazy is he doesn't need to do it. He physically he outdanced Dominic Cruz at UFC 207. He's a smooth enough striker, has good enough footwork, and is just good enough all around that he never need stand and bang with people. Just swinging from the heels with everything he's got, twisting his body side to side it's and every single punch. absolute worst thing he could do. Right. Because if you're Cody Garbrandt and you don't do that, chances are your quickness, your skills, and your power are going to knock the other guy out. Right. As long as you're not out there uh, making it a coin flip. Right. Or at least, like, I'm not going to give him a chance to ever get a clean shot off. Like, I mean, But that is, I think, a fixable problem. I think that... You can address that if you can be honest enough with yourself and if you have somebody in your camp who's honest enough with you. I mean, there's been a lot of coaching turnover over there at Team Alpha Male. So if you have somebody who can sit you down and be like, hey, this is the only way you lose is when you do this. So let's not do this. And we don't have to. Like you do other people a favor when you get into this kind of street fight with them. They wish you would do that because that that lets them into the fight where they might not have had a good chance against you beforehand. At this point, bait Cody Garbrandt into a slugfest is a bona fide strategy. Yeah, or just try to get one good shot off on, on him, whether it's legal or not, and hope that he just has to get his get back and he'll come straight, like, charging after you and then you'll be right where you want to be against him. Like, But I think that that is fixable if you're willing to have the right conversation with him and if he's willing to make that – if he's willing to get to a place where he can believe that about himself. Because right. that's the hard thing. It's like somebody's going to be like, well, hey, man, you can't do this because your chin is not going to take this and this is a bad idea for you and this is how you're going to get knocked out. And he's going to be like, no, 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 I just got caught. The next one would be different. Like he has to realize this is a weakness and yeah. I have to not do it. In theory, it's fixable. Like, it should be eminently fixable. It should be easily fixable. But if that's your your dark passenger and you're Cody Garbrandt, that's a hard thing to ignore, right? Like, if that is your true nature. They say that you go out there and fighting reveals who you truly are. Like, we've seen a lot of people have really bad habits. And if Cody Garbrandt's bad habit is if you make him mad out there, uh, he turns into the Incredible Hulk, but with Glass Joe's chin. Like, that's a tough thing to to maybe work fully out of your system. It shouldn't be, but it also might be. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Christoph Piatek. Oh, yeah. Over on Patreon. Polish professional uh, soccer player. Plays as a forward for uh, Italian club Milan and the, Pol- the Polish national team. Oh, thanks for the Patreon support, Christoph. Yeah. Uh, do you want to know his place of birth? Uh, I hope you don't, because there's no way I could pronounce it. (laughs) It starts with the letter D, followed immediately by the letter Z, which is when I'm out. I can't pronounce that. (laughs) He writes, Johnny Walker, this weird Looney Tunes looking dude, keeps blowing people's heads off with spinning elbows and flying knees while fighting fighting like a quap game character. Now, I didn't know what that was. I had to go look that up online. Okay, what'd you find out? Some kind of 2008 web-based game, I think. I don't know. I also didn't read too much into the description of it. He just took out high-ranked Misha Sirkunov. I guess we now have to consider him one of the top title challengers, right? But how can he be that? I'm not even sure if this guy is really any good at this (laughs) MMA thing. He's just running and jumping around like a madman doing crazy shit. Okay, I understand. I was making myself some eggs this morning and thinking about this very question. Like, 
is Johnny Walker really a good fighter? I don't I don't feel like we can have the answer to that yet. I mean, obviously, he has some some great physical tools. Uh, he goes out there and he's able to knock people out. I mean, he's knocking people out with crazy spinning stuff and jumping stuff. You must be a good athlete in order to do that. You must know the moves. And yet, the these fights have been so quick, especially the last couple, where I don't know if I know anything about him as a fighter yet. Yeah. No, we've talked about this before on the show. Like, winning quickly and uh, in impressive fashion has a way of disguising a lot of, uh, you know, not so... Ad, admirable traits in a in a prospect. We kind of see it again and again. Actually, we've seen it from people perhaps as as advanced in the sport as somebody like Ronda Rousey. Right? She goes out there and armbars everybody super fast uh, in the first round every single time. We start to regard her as extremely dominant. Then she gets into a couple of fights with people that she can't take down that are able to exploit the holes that she has in her stand up game. And suddenly you're like, well, suddenly others on the internet are like, oh shit, this person was never good to begin with. So like, it's hard to have a complete view of a person, a complete dossier on a person, if you will, when they're doing all this impressive stuff. I think that the good news for Johnny Walker is like, he's blowing the doors off everybody. He just blew the doors off Misha Sirkinov, which is like a uh, super impressive win. And the good news is like, you don't necessarily have to fast forward this guy into a title shot if you don't want to. I think that we all agree that the light heavyweight division is shallow enough that the most likely outcome is that Johnny Walker ends up getting in over his head before he's ready. But at the same time, and I know we'll ha- we'll talk a little bit later in the show about what's going to happen next with John Jones, but like there's lots of guys running around this 205 pound division and every damn one of them would make a hashtag would watch fight with Johnny Walker. You tell me he's going to go out there with Jimmy, Jimmy Manawa next? I would watch that. You tell me he's going to go out there with the bricklayer, Elir Latifi? Okay. I would watch that. You tell me he's going to go out there with Dominic Reyes or Beaston 25-8, Corey Anderson, See, which would actually be an interesting and perhaps uh, inadvisable test for Johnny Walker. I was point. just going to say, like, I can get down with a certain kind of fun that you're telling me. You know, Jimmy Manawa, the bricklayer, all that kind of stuff. But if you tell me you want to book him against Corey Anderson, you don't deserve to have fun, man. <laughs> you know, like I, I agree that you do want to see him up against some tougher tests. So you can find out exactly what this guy's got. Yeah. And so you find out without, whether we're in flash in the pan territory or not. But to go out, you need to think about what the day after that fight is going to be like. What will you have done? Maybe just like uh, knocked down the castle you built for yeah. the hell of it. And g- given yourself nothing in return. I mean, I'm just saying, if you wanted to fill the next two years of Johnny Walker's career with fights against dudes like Ovin Sent Prue and Glover Tashira and, and uh, Vulcan Uzdemir and Jan Blakovitz, you could if you wanted to. Will they? Probably not. But they could. You're right, though, that rushing him into a title fight just because you think you have something exciting that people are excited or not even into a title fight necessarily, but rushing him into the top half of the division just because he's got a, a couple big wins stacked up next to each other. You don't have to do that. I will be interested to see if the UFC feels like it wants to do that because the problem with the shallowness at light heavyweight is that if you're not thinking about six months down the road from now, like where are you who you want to have tested and figured out something about, 
if you're just making these fights one at a time and deciding like, all right, uh, who's available? We've got a space on the calendar and we got to throw somebody in there, Johnny Walker, or take whatever fight. Because if you told Johnny Walker you wanted him to fight Alex Gustafson next, he's probably going to do that. Hell yeah, he is. And that would be terrible. That would be a terrible idea. Next question this week comes to us from Philip Sellers, also over on Patreon. He writes... Former uh, Detroit Piston player, Philip Sellers? Maybe. We're talking about? Maybe he's got a little uh, expendable income that yeah. he wants to help out the Co-Main Event podcast well, We with. appreciate that. Not only did Zabit Magomed Sharapov look good in beating Jeremy Stevens, but he also did it while putting on a master class in Dundasso. Two groin strikes, blows to the back of the head, and holding the damn cage so he could kick higher. How good is Zabit? And how would the founder of Dundasso grade his performance? Now, see, this is the exact opposite thing that we just said about Johnny Walker. Zabit Magomed Shiropov goes out there and defeats Jeremy Stevens by unanimous decision. Wasn't necessarily the walkthrough, the highlight-filled walkthrough that maybe you wanted to see out of Zabit Magomed Shiropov. But it's super useful, and I think in a positive way, to see Zabit go out there and go toe-to-toe with a solid, capable veteran like Jeremy Stevens for 15 minutes. Because yeah. you find out that he can do that. You know, yes. This is only his fourth UFC fight. He's got two stoppages, and then he went the distance uh, with Kyle Bochniak. But to see him do it against Jeremy Stevens and, like, for the most part, engage in a fairly conventional fight with Jeremy Stevens. Obviously, there was a few bells and whistles here and there from, from Magomed Sharapov. But, like, he comes away from this fight, I think, looking like, a, a you know, a more complete fighter. The guy he is who we thought he was, and and it's 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 uh, illuminating, if nothing else, to see him go 15 minutes with a guy like Jeremy Stevens. I feel more confident yeah. now in saying Zabit Magomed Sharapov is a guy who can hang with this level of competition, and he doesn't have like that g- glaring weakness that is going to suddenly show up in a fight, and we'll all be like, "Oh shit, yeah, how why didn't we see this before?" You're right. It, what it really shows is that he can take on a guy like Jeremy Stevens, who can be scary if you let him do his stuff, and he didn't let him do his stuff. He he actively avoided Jeremy Stevens and stuff, and yeah, not anything super great to add to his own highlight reel, but he got it done. He he showed that he can if not formulate himself, at least follow a game plan. He can understand how to fight different people and he can stick with it and and win a little bit at a time rather than having to go out there and rely on one big move. And so that is encouraging to be able to do that. Like it shows you like, okay, not only is this guy somebody who has a lot of skills now, but it's somebody who could grow into a real talent in that division. Yeah. And he is still going to give you the occasional flying kick off the cage and spinning back fist. Uh, really liked that weird, like, hooking heel kick that yeah. he does to the back of the leg of his opponent. What'd you think about his Dundasso, though? High level. Yeah. High level. Because, like, nothing happened to him, right? Right. Uh, and Jeremy Stevens is exactly the kind of guy you want to kick in the balls because <laughs> Jeremy Stevens is never going to take the five minutes to recover. No, That's no. Jeremy Stevens over there. No way. He's going to come right out and probably go super aggressively right at you after yeah. that. If And if you are looking to land the counter left hand, like Zabit Magomed Sharapov clearly was, not the worst strategy. I'd like to see a list of your people on both sides. The people, like the top five people who you absolutely want to kick in the balls and then the top five people who you don't. I mean, it's it's you got to know about the personality of the opponent. Some Sun Tzu type shit out here. I feel Who's, like... Who is kicking in the balls going to give you the biggest advantage over? I think if you kick John Jones in the balls, he puts his finger in your eye immediately after that. Yes. Maybe both eyes. Yeah. It'd probably be a really bad idea. Last question this week. Cody Garbrandt, though. 
kick him in oh, the balls. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> He's That's maybe red. the number one strategy against <laughs> Cody Garbrandt. This one from Ryan Busotiel. Uh, this is a good one. Okay. I like this email. So I bet on MMA for the first time for UFC 235. I took the CME suggestion of wagering $20 I never wanted to see again on Johnny Bones winning the main event by decision. I used the site Bovada because it was the first site on Google. Okay. I placed my bet and I counted down the 25 minutes of the fight. It wasn't too nerve wracking, save for the almost DQ for an illegal knee. At the end of the fight, I went to the site to find out how to collect my $150 in winnings. I figured I could just transfer the money to PayPal. Well, that's when shit got weird. Turns out, Bovada doesn't pay out in real money because that's no fun. <laughs> I need to collect my winnings in Bitcoin. Bitcoin! <laughs> what? How is that still a thing? So, I had to download an app to request my winnings in Bitcoin cash. Oh, There's God. more than one kind of this fake currency. And now, wait 24 to 48 hours for it to clear. After that, I have to sell my Bitcoin to get it in U.S. dollars. I've made peace with the fact that I'm never going to see any of my money again. A kid probably has it and is buying outfits for his Fortnite character or whatever the kids play. Lesson here, if you get illegally need, take the DQ win and my $20 to save me the headache. Oh, man, this is great. First of all, I feel ethically conflicted to know that Ryan Busatil has gone his whole life never feeling like he needed to bet on MMA. Then he listened to our Power Hour podcast on Friday and... We led him down this path. This is why we can't get too deep into to, into gambling <laughs> discussion, which, yeah. frankly, I don't want to do anyway because there's a lot of podcasts out there that will give you that if that's what you want. But we don't know anything about it. We're just talking. We're just saying hashtag just saying stuff. You know, that's why I say for entertainment purposes only because yeah. I literally don't <laughs> yes. want you to spend your money on the things that we recommend that you bet on. Uh, also. I have had a similar experience with online sports betting. The only other time that I tried it was like, you know, I remember it was definitely when I was living in New York. So it must have been like 2006 to 2008-ish and betting on MMA because feeling like, hey, here's something I actually know a little something about. And maybe the bookmakers don't so much because it's still kind of new. And you'd see the betting lines pop up on internet stories and everything. And so I can't remember which one. I think maybe I did like bet us or bet us. I don't know which, how it was meant to be said. But it was like, yeah, you know, I put like a little bit of money in there, bet on a few fights and won more than I lost. And then I was like, all right, how do I get my money out? And I remember the only two options they would give me, uh, like one was some kind of like really – it wasn't quite Bitcoin, but it was the Bitcoin of its day. But the other one was like courier check, which comes with like a $25 fee. And of course, I only had like 60 bucks or something to right. get out. And so it was just like, wait a minute. And that's when I kind of realized like, all right, it's not the – the big threat is not that you're going to necessarily lose your shirt gambling, but that even if you do have some money, they're going to make it real hard to get that money out. What a surprise for us all to learn <laughs> that the people who operate online betting sites – uh, perhaps not making it as easy as, as it possibly could be for you to take your money out. Pretty easy to put it in. Yeah. Harder to take it Shockingly out. easy to put it in. So that's a, a, a word of warning for those of you who are out there who are betting the co-main event podcast. Maybe this is something that, uh, like a side venture for SoundCloud? Yeah, SoundCloud, soundclown.com. Maybe, yeah, maybe you can place a few dollar wager on, on, uh, on the fights. Because who better to trust with your money than a SoundCloud? Yeah. He wouldn't steer you wrong. Also, don't bet the co-main event podcast wagers. Just don't do that. Yeah. Unless you're Kevin Brady. Our parlay didn't go so great. No, that's that's not. Let's not talk about that. Talk about that later in the show. That's going to do it for this week's uh, listener mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern, 
that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us while you're there. Go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really, really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. everyone expected John Jones didn't have a whole lot of trouble with Anthony Smith in the main event of UFC 235 ends up walking away with the unanimous decision win still the UFC light heavyweight champion obviously still talking like he wants to fight a bunch this year or at least fight at a rate you know more frequently than he has been the last several years seems intent on keeping himself out of trouble and keeping himself active in the UFC my question for you is that I'm going to I'm going to make the argument that this is sort of like a new style of performance for John Jones. You know, we used to see him go out there and just blow people's doors off. When he first started in the UFC, he would take guys down and and just absolutely batter them with punches and and elbows. Uh, you know, later on it seemed like he was a guy who delighted in in taking away from you the thing that was you were best at and in fact often oftentimes bettering you at it. Now he seems and he says himself that he's more comfortable out there, which I think equates to a more patient uh you know, maybe, maybe more difficult to defeat John Jones. Cause he's just going to put on a really steady professional performance. That's almost like a noose that starts with a little slack in it. And then he slowly, slowly pulls it out until, you know, you don't, you have no tools left. Is kind of what it seems like. At least that's what he did against Anthony Smith, a guy who is known to be very, very durable. My opening question to you is if you buy that hypothesis, do you think that that makes John Jones more or less impressive as the UFC light heavyweight champion? I think it makes him more impressive to be able to tailor what he's doing to what other people are doing. I think that that's a, a skill that is a lot harder to anticipate how you're going to deal with when you get in there with the guy. Because it's one thing, we've seen it before, where you know, you're fighting Francis Ngannou, and you know what Francis Ngannou wants to do is he wants to stand there and hit you upside your head so hard that you wake up several minutes later. Yeah. And you know that's what he's going to want to do no matter who you are and what you bring to the table. That's always what he wants to do. You can plan around that, and you can strategize around that. Whether you, I mean, whether it works in the end, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but at least there aren't a whole lot of surprises. Whereas... If you have to anticipate what John Jones is going to do in response to your specific skills and your specific game, it requires a level of guesswork. Like you're going to try to anticipate the like an anticipation basically. And you might be right and you might be wrong. Maybe he's seen something about you that you haven't seen. Maybe he will deal with you differently than he has dealt with somebody who is similar to you. It really makes it tough, especially to adjust on the fly and figure out what you're going to do against the guy. And especially against Anthony Smith, one of the things he was really good at doing was just constantly disrupting Anthony Smith's offense before he could even start it. Yeah. Like Anthony Smith was able to do very little in this fight. I mean, I think he landed like 45 strikes 
over five rounds. John John Jones landed like 230-something strikes over five rounds. And they weren't like he was just trying to take you out with every single one of them. Those kicks where he's kicking you in the body, he's kicking you in the legs, he's he's throwing up a, a high kick, he's he's messing with you when you try to change stances on him. He's just constantly throwing something at you so that you have to worry about that and you're not able to think about getting your own offense off. And that was what you saw, especially late in the fight, where it was like, Anthony Smith had to know he was down on the scorecards. He had to know he really needed to go out there and try to get a finish, but he just couldn't get off against John Jones. And yeah. I think that's one of the things that is really tough to work around because what are you telling yourself you're going to do in order to stop him from doing that? Right. And, you know, John Jones was already a guy who was hard to game plan for just because it's hard to uh, simulate that the physical traits of John Jones. Right. Hard to simulate someone that long, that strong. Plus that that crafty and uh, and talented in the sport, and I think you saw that in a guy like Anthony Smith, who's who's been around so long and been in so many fights, he still gets out there against John Jones, and it didn't necessarily seem like he was overcome by the moment or he wasn't up to it. But man, you just get in there with John Jones, and it's like a whole different kind of puzzle. Yeah. It's like a thing you've you've never done before. And Anthony Smith, as you said, is a guy who is known as like a super aggressive offensive fighter who will go out there and stop you, try to knock you out. And he really looked lost in a lot of instances against John Jones. And I think that he even admitted that after the fight was that, you know, he, he did exactly what he told everyone he would not do. And that was in, in Anthony Smith's words, he allowed John Jones to be John Jones and dictate the pace, uh, which is sort of a fighter E way to say it, but like, it's hard to go out there against John Jones and, and like do your stuff because it's right. just a different, it's like a three dimensional puzzle when you're used to just putting together uh two dimensional picture puzzles on your table. Do you think that that made him more likely to feel afterwards the way he felt like, Hey, he didn't really beat me. He just kind of stopped me from doing stuff because I was a little bit surprised. Uh, maybe not too surprised with Anthony Smith's remarks afterwards. We talked before about how, Fighters have to tell themselves some stories sometimes. Sometimes yeah. they have to even lie to themselves in order to get yourself back in there. But his remarks afterwards was like, John Jones didn't really beat me. He just nullified me. And I don't, I didn't come away from that feeling like this guy is unbeatable or like this guy's just too good and I can't do anything about it. I feel like I can get back here and I can beat him. And it's like, I understand how he might come away from that fight feeling that way, but it's not as if John Jones just held held onto it and stifled his offense. Like, John Jones was throwing offense at him the entire time. Yeah. And there were times even in the fight where it seemed like if Jones were to crank up the volume a little bit here and just crank up the output, he could probably finish Anthony Smith. Yeah. But he seems a smart enough fighter to know, I'm not going to give this guy any chances to get back in the fight if I don't have to. If I can just control him here. And, it, and you know, John Jones praised Anthony Smith for not losing his composure in certain parts where, you know, he was in bad spots and he stayed calm. But a lot of times the way he held on to his composure was by not doing much. Yeah. Like it wasn't freaking out trying to get back to a better position or trying to get into a more like offensive position. And that just led the clock to kind of bleed down as John Jones is just picking away at you. Yeah. Uh, Dana White has said he thinks next up for John Jones should be Tiago Santos, who's rocketed all the way up to number four in the light heavyweight rankings. And a guy who we've talked about a lot recently on this show, just because he's fun to watch. He's going to go out there and, and, uh, you know, go straight at you and, and try to knock you out. Uh, I guess that's as good a fight as any that's available for John Jones at 205 pounds right now. He's already defeated the guys who are technically ranked one, two, and three in this, in this division. But I wonder about John Jones's pursuit of immortality. He's talked about how he wants to settle the, 
the argument in MMA about who is the greatest of all time by the end of this year. Do you think he can do that if the UFC is serving up Anthony Smith's and Tiago Santos's for, for John Jones? It seems to me like if he goes out and, and blows the doors off Tiago Santos or has you know, a steady, professional, dominating, suffocating performance against Tiago Santos like he did against Anthony Smith, that that's about as far as the rope goes at 205 pounds, at least in the current landscape. Yeah, we talked about it before, about what would it, what would he have to do for us to go, okay, now, if you didn't buy it before, you have to buy it now that John Jones is the best. And I don't know if there is anybody at light heavyweight who he could beat. I think you would have to give him some some do daps for just stringing together a whole bunch of wins at light heavyweight. It would be giving us what we claim to want a whole bunch of title defenses to stay really active and kind of make up for some lost time and to really just put the stamp on it that, Hey, there's nobody in this division who can even come close, like bring me your contenders and I will just crush them one by one easily. And I won't even lose a round doing it. I think that that will be impressive, like in the aggregate, but it's not like, you're looking at John Jones after he dominates Anthony Smith for five rounds and you're going, no, I still don't buy it. How would he do against Thiago Mejeta Santos is what right. I need to know. Right. Like nobody is after Santos. But at the same time, you know, if he doesn't want to go up to heavyweight right now, and I, I don't necessarily think that he ought to be pressured to go up to heavyweight right now, then, hey, I don't have a problem with uh, Santos as the next guy in line. You know, he's been winning the fights. He's an exciting uh, stylistic matchup. He'll at least bring it on John Jones, you got to think, and force something to happen. So, sure, fuck it. Let's do that. Why not? I keep thinking about the end of the year, though, because you figure if John Jones wants to stay super active, he will fight sometime this summer. Right. Late or early summer. Maybe International Fight Week. Yeah, maybe. Red, white, fight week. Maybe around July 4th. Uh, The UFC is going to want to make a splash for its end of the year pay-per-view like it always does. You got to think that if if he's around and available and not on suspension – that John Jones is going to be part of those plans. And if you try to start thinking about what, what could be special that you could plan for John Jones. John Jones, Jimmy Manoa. Almost all of it is up at heavyweight. John Jones, Corey Anderson. Right. Like you, Brock Lesnar, a rematch with Daniel Cormier, Francis Ngannou, Stipe Miocic, something that is going to blow people's hair back by the end of the year. So like I know he's talking about 205 right now. I just think that they're going to come to him with an offer. Like like going to the Godfather on the day of his daughter's wedding, <laughs> and they're gonna say, "Hey, John, we will give you an absolute, unbelievable truckload of money if you want to fight, you know, somebody like that." Yeah. At the end. Of well, the day. and that's what he says it's gonna take, right? Is that you're gonna have to make him a financial offer that he can't refuse in order to go up to heavyweight. Which, hey, good for him. I think he's smart to to draw that line and be like, "All right, I'll keep." You have me contracted here at light heavyweight. I'll keep doing that. You want me to do something different? You better pay up for it. I think he's he's absolutely right to do that. And the UFC, I think it makes sense. Like if you, it makes sense for you to pay John Jones a lot of money if you're going to throw something like Brock Lesnar out there because that's a fight that everybody, all the talking heads who don't know anything about mixed martial arts, are going to get the biggest possible boners for John Jones versus Brock Lesnar at the no, end of the year. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting boners to come up in this round. Well, here we are. Always on something unexpected. All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room, and this is going to get us into Are You Fucking Kidding Me? What are the odds that John Jones loses a fight by disqualification? Like, doesn't that seem like the way he's most vulnerable at this point? We've he's already the seen way it. he has lost We've a fight. We've already seen it happen once against Matt Hamill. He's out here a little bit loosey-goosey against Anthony Smith, throwing kicks when Anthony Smith is down on his back, uh, throwing knees when Anthony Smith is uh, kind of a downed opponent. And, like, the biggest, like we read earlier in, in Listener Mail, 
if you were a John Jones fan in this fight, the the most concerning moments of this fight were when when it was the fight was stopped and we were all waiting to see if Anthony Smith was going to walk out of there with the light heavyweight title via disqualification. Yeah. Yeah. And it is weird that you would think if you've already been disqualified once because you were clearly winning a fight and you were throwing everything you had and then you you got a little too creative for your own good and you accidentally invented an illegal strike, you would think that would be a kind of moment that sticks with you, especially yeah. if it is your only professional loss. You would think you'd be like, all right, the one thing I have to not do is disqualify myself. And yet, almost a too perfect representation of how his life outside the cage has gone, the biggest threat to John Jones is John Jones. He he goes the, you know the knee I can almost see the when he, he was almost he was up on his feet yeah and he had a hand down and Nevada made the the rules way more complicated than they have to be by saying okay we adopt all the new rules except the grounded fighter <laughs> rule you're you're begging for something like that to have to happen to you but before that he had thrown the kick while Anthony Smith was on the ground and Anthony Smith talked about it afterwards and he was like well those felt like kind of the, some of the hardest strikes I took on the entire fight yeah yeah. It, it is kind of baffling because you just have to be like, man, you have so many ways to win and so few ways to lose. Don't make it any easier for those ways to find you. Yeah. Can we do are you are you fucking kidding me here? Sure. Because my are you fucking kidding me is related to this discussion. Okay. Ben, think of the enormous debt that the entire MMA world owes Anthony Smith for not walking away with this DQ win. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm serious. Really think about this. Think about the time, energy, and hassle that Anthony Smith saved every fucking buddy. Not to mention the extra money that we would all have to shell out for another pay-per-view to watch the same fight all over again. All the media, all the lead-up, a total and complete fucking do-over is what would have had to happen. And we would be talking about this shit till June, Ben. We'll be sitting here talking about Anthony Smith versus John Jones too until summertime. Mm. Are you fucking kidding me? And Anthony Smith, frankly, did this at great personal financial, if nothing else, sacrifice for himself. Because you know, obviously everybody would have just resented the shit out of him for it. It would have gone down in history as one of the cheapest title wins in MMA history. But he would have got his win bonus. And he would have been in line to get a pay-per-view cut as the champion of his next fight with John Jones. Are you fucking kidding me? MMA fans should go to the internet right now and set, set up a GoFundMe to send Anthony Smith some money. Yeah, we should Venmo him. We should all Venmo him five bucks. Just send him a million fucking dollars. As long as we're all paying less than 60 bucks to do it. He's still saving us money. Yeah. He's still yeah. saving us money for not taking that shiny new UFC belt and just walking out of the cage. Yep. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? But Chad, my are you fucking kidding me this week? You remember when the UFC was new on ESPN and announced like, all right, you know who's going to be on our first show? We're going to have Greg Hardy, who mainstream sports fans will remember from being run out of the NFL for a variety of personal conduct issues, including domestic violence. So we want to lead with that guy. We got a lot of eggs in that basket. And then he went out there and he did get himself disqualified for an illegal knee. And they learned that lesson, right? Wrong. Jad, Greg Hardy has a fight book. Do you want to know what event it's on? I guess. 
UFC on ESPN three. Okay, put him back in the in the on the big show. Yeah, you want to know who he's fighting? (sighs) I guess Dmitry Smolyakov. Oh, that guy. Now Dmitry Smolyakov, he's coming off a win in Asian Challenge. Uh, in January, he was in the UFC. You, I'm sure you knew that. I'm sure you really followed that. That stay in the UFC very closely uh, until he lost his only two UFC fights, was submitted by uh, Luis Henrique Barbosa de Oliveira, and then was TKO'd in the first round by Surreal Asker. You could just be making up all these dudes. Then he was cut and didn't fight for a couple years. Popped back up, uh, submitted Evgeny Bova. An Asian challenge. Evgeny Bova, by the way, right now stands with a record of 7-9-1. and one. And that win over Evgeny Bova was enough for the UFC to be like, okay, this guy deserves another chance. Clearly, we, we might have missed the boat on this talent who we cut after he went 0-2 in the UFC. Let's get him back in here in the big show so he can fight Greg Hardy because we, we want to be in the Dmitry Smolikov business. Definitely calling up Dmitry Smolikov because you think he's the future of the heavyweight division. Or... Or maybe not hypothetical, just going to throw this out there. Maybe the UFC is so fucking invested in making sure that Greg Hardy becomes a thing. They will go shopping for a guy they think he can beat. Huh. And then when that doesn't work out because he gets himself disqualified, they'll go shopping for another guy they think he can beat. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. It's not enough to just be employing a guy who... Uh, created all these problems for himself in the NFL and who had this domestic violence uh, cloud hanging over his head, you need to go out of your way to try to set him up for success. Are you fucking kidding me? Dmitry Smolikov. The lifeguard. That's his nickname? According to Sheridog, his nickname is the lifeguard. I hope he comes out wearing like a red tank top carrying a flotation device. They'd never allow something like that to happen. It's too fun. Dmitry Smolikov. He sounds like a guy that uh, Christopher and Polly Walnuts would have to kill on the first season of Sopranos. Okay, yeah. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, you know how this show stays ad-free, independent, unfettered discourse, not bogged down by corporate interests? Is it our own stick In a way, but mostly it's due to our very generous and kind Patreon supporters who make this podcast possible with their support on Patreon. Right now, we're up to 1,012 patrons, Chad. Ooh. We love each and every one of them, and in return, we give them lots of great stuff like streaming events, uh, live chats every week, Wednesday, 11.30 a.m. in the One True Time Zone. That's Mountain Time, 10.30 a.m. Pacific, if you're into that. Uh, plus, $5 and up patrons get access to a whole nother podcast each week, the Patreon Power Hour. It's hot. That's the hottest hour of MMA podcast of the week. That's right. And our top tier patrons also get a- access to other stuff like our tips for a well-rounded fight fan newsletter, which also, just went out. Also hot. Just went out last week. Plus our Deadwood rewatch podcast, Road Agents. Road Agents. Which I know we've been seeing on Twitter. We've been having a lot of fun. 
uh, people watching Deadwood along with us and really just enjoying the hell out of it. All that makes all this stuff possible. All you have to do to get down with that is go to patreon.com slash co-main event. You can get in at the $1, $5, or $10 levels. I mean, $1 a month, that's that's nothing for a podcast like this. That's exactly this. right. $10 a month for, for road agents, it seems like it's worth every penny. It does. Because road agents, it might be the best thing we got going right now. That's right. And... We just want to take a moment to appreciate everybody who supports us on the Patreon. This is what keeps us from having to uh, read out ads for Dude Wipes, uh, as much as I know Chad would enjoy that, and keeps us from being beholden to any of these corporate fat cats who want to fetter this discourse. Just fetter the shit out of it. We won't allow that. They would fetter it if they could. They would. Half a chance. The discourse would be corporately fettered. They're sitting around in boardrooms right now trying to scheme up ways to fetter this here discourse but you, our Patreon subscribers, will not allow it. And not for that, happen. we salute you. Ben, Kamaru Usman against Tyron Woodley did not go the way we thought. Nope. No, it did not. It's not that we didn't know that Kamaru Usman was tough. It's not that we didn't know that he was a, a terrific wrestler. We just thought Tyron Woodley was kind of the best thing going at 170 pounds. Kamaru Usman goes out there and walks through T. Wood. Unanimous decision, new champ, clean sweep, 50-44s a couple of times from the judges. You got a new champ, man. What are you thinking? How are you feeling? How ready are you to embrace Kamaru Usman at this moment? You know, we talked a little bit about this in our immediate reaction after the fight. I'm still a little bit weirded out by Tyron Woodley's performance in the fight. It was very strange. But again, like Anthony Smith against John Jones, it seemed like... The stuff Kamara Usman was doing, uh, the pressure, the uh, you know him not letting Woodley get comfortable, him keeping Woodley's back against the cage, and frankly, Tyron Woodley is a guy that we've seen before kind of allow himself to get uh, stymied against the cage. I think you got to give that credit to, to Kamara Usman, even if Tyron Woodley is obviously going to come out after the fight and say it was one of those nights that felt like a nightmare. Like it wouldn't have felt like a nightmare if not for Kamaru Usman doing everything he needed to do to win this fight. Right, yeah. The, it was very nightmarish to be stuck on the bottom of that guy while he elbows you in the head, I'm sure. But yeah, it does make it still a little difficult for me to be like, did Kamaru Usman just crack the code on Tyron Woodley? Did he just figure it out by showing him no respect and getting right in his face and being a good enough wrestler to make that work? Or did Tyron Woodley just not find that in second gear? Yeah. And not able to get started because that's kind of what it felt like. But then again, like I don't want to take anything away from Kamaru Usman because he did really go out there and do exactly what he needed to do. He he fought Tyron Woodley like he was nothing that he hadn't seen before. Like he did exactly his stuff to yeah. Tyron Woodley. And, you know, I think you've got to give him a whole lot of credit for that because a lot of other people end up standing there and staring at Tyron Woodley trying to figure out how to go after him. Uh, he really just got right in his face from the from the jump and stayed on him the entire time. And I'm excited to see what he does as champion because I think that there's some interesting stuff that opens up at welterweight now as a result of him winning the title. Absolutely. And like give Kamaru Usman credit for kind of exploiting perhaps one of Tyron Woodley's weaknesses or one of his tendencies. And that is something that we've seen from him in the past. And that is, you know, a willingness to not be the most active fighter in the world, but to kind of wait for his opponent to make a mistake and then capitalize on that either with his wrestling or with the tremendous power that he has in his hands. Uh, Kamaru Usman went straight at him. 
Like he, he, and for a while you could see Tyron Woodley kind of thinking that he was playing that game, that he was just going to wait and that eventually he would weather the storm and things would turn out like they always have in the past. But Kamara Usman was just so damn good and so damn heavy on top and, and so uh, willing and able to wear Tyron Woodley down that by the start of the fifth round, Tyron Woodley had a look on his face like, I'm not going to win this fight. Yeah. Frankly. Uh, and so that, you know, I think you've got to give all that credit to, to Kamara Usman. I also think you got to give him credit for showing up in the pre-fight and the post-fight wearing just an amazing suit. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was ready to say my standout moment from UFC 235 was Johnny Walker, uh, TKO, and Misha Sirkunov with that flying knee 36 seconds into their fight. It was actually the suit that Kamaru Usman wore to the press conference because that is not an easy suit to wear. And I don't Kamaru, think either one of us could pull it hell off. Hell no. No. Kamaru Usman made it look good. I don't even know how to describe it. It had some blue flowers on it. It made me feel like I was taking mushrooms. <laughs> yes. It was like a psychedelic dream. Yeah. Or a nightmare if you're Tyron Woodley. But Kamaru <laughs> Usman, who's that guy's tailor? That's what I want to know. Well, and then, though, Ty- Kamaru Usman enjoying his victory, savoring his victory in Las Vegas. Feel good family victory. That's right. Kamaru Usman. And then we have what happened out there at the buffet. Now, a well, couple- let's, let's, let, well, before we talk about that, Colby Covington had a weekend. He did. In Vegas. <laughs> Colby Covington's weekend, weekend in Vegas. That, that ends up getting him banned for life from the Palms to hear him tell it. He shows up at the open workouts with a megaphone. He tracks down Dana White at the high roller blackjack tables in a video that I don't think worked out for Colby Covington (laughs) the way he thought it was going to. He's cage side and his people's champ t-shirt and his MAGA hat. He damn near started started a fight with Kamara Usman while he's walking out of the cage. And Johnny on the spot UFC security guard had to be like, dude, you just won the world title. Let's not do this right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well... I mean, honestly, I'm forced to admit that is this not proof that Colby Covington's gimmick works? It's obvious. It's poorly executed. It's ham-fisted in every single way. And it's kind of cringy in a lot of ways. And yet, we changed champions and he's still the grudge match of choice. If Tyron Woodley had won, he would have been up there being like, Colby Covington, I want to beat that ass. Give me Colby Covington next. And Kamaru Usman won, and he went up there and said, I want to fuck this guy up so bad. Yeah. Like, he, he like, even if he's doing the thing that where we're all like, okay, we all see what you're doing, and you're not even doing it that well, it's working. It's serving the purpose that it's supposed to serve. We want to see him get in there and, and fight one of these guys next, and they both badly want to fight him. It Mission accomplished. so bad to admit that. Because there's no art to it. No. There's no uh, technique to it. Nope. He's not doing anything right. It's like when you go to like a, a like a really sad strip club and they just like come out there and they're just like doom, just taking it off, like barely even dancing, uh, kind of just like turning in slow circles. Like, is this not what you came for? And you're like, yeah, I mean, I guess it is. And it's working. It's working on all of us. I mean, but the reason that it's working is because there ain't nothing else going on. True. Right? Very true. And we'll talk and about... Tyron Woodley said that like a year ago. We'll talk about Robbie Lawler versus Ben Askren in the next round coming up. But like Colby Covington, obviously interim champ, still carrying around the old school belt. He's going to fight Kamaru Usman because there isn't really anybody else out there to do it immediately. And I don't think anybody thinks Colby Covington is going to win. And it's kind of like, I don't want to see the lead up. If you could oh, put yeah. me into a medically induced coma and wake me up on fight night, yeah. I would take that. 
rat over seeing any of the things that these guys are going to do in the lead up. I mean, I might just take a medi- medically induced coma anytime. Just as a parent, just for it sounds delightful. Rest and recovery. Yeah, but you're right. There's going to be a lot of awful stuff about it. I mean, I would be interested to see how it plays out as a stylistic matchup because when you look at like if you look at common opponent kind of thing, like where you look at them against Rafael dos Anjos, it's kind of the same fight. They, they kind of just both did, went out there and did the same thing. I think Kamaru Usman probably did a little bit better, but it's not like there's a ton of daylight between them. I'll be very interested to see like how that fight actually ends up playing out. I mean, God help us if Colby Covington ends up as the actual champion. Can you imagine that? I know. I can't. I don't want to. I'm not going to. I you, refuse to imagine it. Do you want to live in a world where the UFC champion can't even walk into the Palms because he's banned for life? <laughs> I think if he becomes UFC champion, they have to rescind that, right? Really? You think that that's all it takes to get him to reconsider? I mean, Dana's back in. Well, that's true. Did we, Was there a blind spot? Did we just flat overlook Kamara Usman here? Because this dude has been in the UFC since 2015, you know, going on four years in the UFC. He was 8-0 in the UFC headed into this fight, 14-1 and overall. He beat Rafael Dos Anjos. He beat Damian Maya. He beat Emil Meek. Uh, we hadn't seen him against a ton of like real, real high level guys, but like he just went out and did the same damn thing to Tyron Woodley that he's done to everybody else. Yeah, but I mean, it, I don't. Yeah, maybe we did overlook him a little bit just because, like, or maybe we put uh, Tyron Woodley on a little bit of a pedestal just because of all the stuff we'd seen from him. But when you look at who Kamara Usman has actually beaten, I mean, compare him with. Colby Covington, if you want to talk about, like, uh, should we be able to look at the record and, and tell that somebody's really good? He beat Rafael Dos Anjos. He beat Demian Mayo. Like, he, he's done a lot of that same stuff. And so, I mean, the only – Colby Covington lost to Warley Alves, whereas Kamaru Usman beat Warley Alves. But other than that, I mean, you look down at the record and you don't see anything that really jumps out at you where you would have been like, okay, that one was the one where we should have known that he was going to be the best welterweight in the world. I mean, you, I think especially style-wise, it made sense to think like, well, Tyron Woodley would seem to be well-equipped to deal with a guy who wants to press you up against the cage and take you down and elbow you in the face. Like, he seems like he ought to be able to handle that. And then he just, he had nothing for it. Yeah. Well, if we are going to do Kamaru Usman against Colby Covington, I just hope Kamaru Usman comes out squarely in favor of the Green New Deal. Wow, Colby Covington is wearing his MAGA hat. Let's just do the, do it all the way. Yeah? Or just, I don't know, maybe don't do it at all. Maybe just have the fight without telling us that it's going to happen. Okay. Like UFC 239, we show up expecting a great card. Oh, by the way, the swing fight tonight, Kamaru Usman versus Colby Covington. A gag order has been in place. How about this? They don't tell us until it's already happened and they've taped it. And they're like, okay. <laughs> We had it in an empty warehouse. We had uh, it in the buffet line at the Palms. We, we had it at like, you know, one of those secured areas in New Mexico. And uh, now, disaster averted, we can release the footage. Hey, works for me. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. Round number three. Say this for Ben Askren's UFC debut. It was not boring. Nope. So perhaps if that was our main concern here headed in about funky Ben Askren, 
success. Yeah. Went out there, beat Robbie Lawler via technical submission, first round, and yet. And, and yet. yet. It doesn't feel like a ringing success for Ben Askren. Uh, even though he weathered the storm of, of Robbie Lawler's early assault, uh, damn near got backdropped professional wrestling style. This the strange, I guess the controversy surrounding the stoppage. How much does it undermine for you, Ben Askren's UFC debut? You know, I don't really think it undermines it. And it honestly plays a lot into what Ben Askren is trying to do with his public presentation in the UFC. Yeah. Uh, Danny Downs and I were talking a little bit about it in our trading shots column. And he was like, man, this is kind of the perfect scenario for him. Because he went out there, he got beat up a little bit, but showed that he's a tough son of a bitch. He's not going to go away very easily. And then he wins, but wins in such a way that the people who want to hate on Ben Askren can keep hating on him. And then he can rub it in Dana White's face, even though it doesn't feel like it was exactly you know, a, a, a domination on his part. I think it makes people excited to see what he does next. Yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, I think it really... I hate to say something like that, like a controversial ending like that helps him, but it does. We like to say on this show that everybody got to do their stuff. Yeah. Everybody got to do their stuff in this fight. Robbie Lawler got to look terrifying. Uh, you got to see his punching power. At the same time, you got to see Ben Askren's wrestling ability. You got to see his opportunistic ability to grab a hold of a submission in a scramble. Uh, and then you got to see him act like kind of an ass afterward. Yeah. Uh, you got to see Dana Herb White. Dean got to fuck up. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know about that. that is everybody doing their stuff. But uh, Dana White got to act aggrieved and talk about <laughs> how he wants to do a rematch. Now Ben Askren says we're not doing that. Uh, okay. Let's talk about that for a second. Do you think he owes Robbie Lawler a rematch? Yeah. I mean, if you're Ben Askren, you probably think, hey, I got a submission and the ref stopped the fight. What's the what's the controversy? Uh, and maybe we can talk about that in a, in a second. But, I mean, if you're Ben Askren, do, I don't know that he owes Robbie Lawler a rematch. But I think that that is a fight that everyone could get paid money for. And I think the UFC could make money off of it. And so, like, you know, if I say at the top of the show that everybody kind of, it worked out great for everybody, except for maybe Herb Dean, uh, that's what I mean. Like, and I don't think any, any even though this was not the the outcome that we wanted to see, I don't think that fans are going to grumble and gripe about seeing it again. Yeah, I don't I mean, I feel like you do maybe owe the guy a rematch there and yet I don't really want us to go through that same thing again. I just think maybe feels like we've waited so long to see Ben Askren in the UFC and to find out what he can do. I kind of want to move on and continue answering that question. All right, well let's talk about the stoppage itself and then maybe we can talk about what we would like to see from Ben Askren next. This thing it looked like Robbie Lawler was out until after the stoppage had occurred, which is one of the things that kind of drives me crazy about mixed martial arts is that we are given this luxury of judging a referee's decision, you know, after we've seen the results yeah. like after it, after the fact. And, you know, Robbie Lawler wasn't out in the choke. You can see on the replay that he like gives sort of a feeble thumbs up. Yeah. He did try to do it. Cause he reached out and grabbed his arm. Body. You can see him trying to do something with his hand there. Yeah. I don't know that, that Herb Dean was able to see that, uh, just like Robbie Lawler couldn't hear Herb Dean asking him if he's okay because he's got Ben Askren's arm clamped over his ear. Yeah, and like the, the way that his arm dropped off of Ben Askren's head onto the mat sure made it look like he was unconscious. Again, like I know that it's the trendy thing to do. We blast these referees and talk about how terrible they are. And this one was was kind of an unfortunate stoppage, obviously. But at the same time, like, I mean, Herb Dean doesn't have the the great luxury of 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 you know having the the force the like ability 
to tell what's going to happen after he stops the fight. Yeah. No, I mean, it was it was surprising to me to see as soon as he made Ben Askren let go of Robbie Lawler. If you'd asked me what I was expecting to happen in that very split second next, I was expecting Robbie Lawler to face plant unconscious into the mat because that's yeah. what it looked like was happening. Yeah. And then to see him like sit up immediately with the what the fuck uh, face, I was surprised. Yeah. And if you told me that uh, Robbie Lawler was some kind of damn vampire who just like it was immortal and, and couldn't be choked out, I would be like, that also seems believable. Do you think? Maybe Herb Dean had seen that video on the internet of Ben Askren crushing watermelons uh, with his forearms, like in the crushing. And, and he was, was like, like, my God, save, <laughs> save Robbie Lawler's like, life. I will not stand by and watch Robbie Lawler get his head crushed like a watermelon. The saddest part to me was that like, while he's raising Ben Askren's hand, Herb Dean has this look on his face where he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to open my Twitter for days. Yeah. That was the look he had on his he face. He knew. You know what, though? But Robbie Lawler was so fucking cool about it. Like, yes, he was he mad was. at first, but then he was just like, <sighs> you know, and then afterwards in the press conference, he was like, Herb's a good ref, man. He just made a mistake. It happens to everybody. It's like, hey, that's man. a pretty good Robbie Lawler impression you got there. <laughs> How'd you get so reasonable, Robbie Lawler? And yet, you know, he's totally unreasonable. Yeah, he's a maniac. No, he's a maniac, but he's just so, he, he did handle this well uh, and with professionalism. All right, Ben Askren officially gets his first UFC win. So you think he should, well, I understand if you're Ben Askren, you might feel like you got away with one here. Conor McGregor versus Jose Aldo style. <laughs> you are climbing out the house window with a couple of bags of money slung right. over your shoulder. And if you just run down the block and never look back, I'll understand. Well, there's never as much to gain in a rematch for the guy who won. It's just like, what, what does he do? He's just proving basically that he could have won that fight. Like, it doesn't really boost him up anywhere. I do say, though, it's a little odd for him to be like, all right, and next, I'm setting my sights on the winner of Darren Till versus Jorge Masvidal. Because, I mean, maybe that's just him thinking it through and being like, I smoke either one of those guys with my wrestling skills alone. Yeah. Because it does seem like, man, you go from former champion and beloved maniac serial killer Robbie Lawler to the winner of Darren Till versus Jorge Masvidal. It feels like, okay, it's not exactly a big jump up in competition. Yeah, well, I mean, I I don't think it would surprise anybody if we described Ben Askren as opportunistic, Yeah, right? Like, he wants to get another fight under his belt. It makes you wonder, though, like how he truly felt about this matchup with Robbie Lawler and if there's sort of like a whoo moment yeah. for him after he gets this win because now, you know, even though Darren Till is still officially ranked number three in the uh, in the welterweight division, it does sort of feel like, okay, now that I've cleared this enormous first hurdle, like let me get a little momentum going here. Let me, let me, uh, let me choose a fight that I'm reasonably sure I can win. And, I, you know, it, I still don't know if we found much out about what Ben Askren's ceiling is at 170 pounds in, in the UFC. Like, clearly... Uh, he took those shots on the ground from Robbie Lawler and still came back for more and was able to to get a, a certain kind of victory here. And again, like some of those shots were hard enough where like if you had stopped the fight at that moment, like Ben yeah. Askren probably would have been able to what the fuck you. But at the same time, he would have been what the fuck you with his face all smashed to shit. Indeed. Indeed. He would have what the fuck you through a bunch of blood. So if you could fantasy match make anything for Ben Askren coming out of this, you know, mess but at the same time you got the win here what do you do at 170 pounds you know when you look around at who is booked and uh you know who he could conceivably fight i think you got to do kamaru usman colby covington next for the title uh and then you look around and you see like stephen thompson's got a date against anthony pettis uh you know 
further down, it seems like a bunch of fights where it wouldn't necessarily prove anything that he didn't prove by beating Robbie Lawler. So I guess I'm not going to be too mad about if he takes on the winner of, you know, especially if it's Darren Till. Darren Till goes out there and really looks good against Jorge Masvidal, and then Ben Askren and Darren Till fight after talking shit to each other on Twitter. Okay, yeah, we'll watch that. I mean, otherwise, what are you looking at? Like, because I don't want to, don't you put Ben Askren in there against my guy Demian Maya? Don't you, don't you put that evil on my guy? Don't don't even think about doing something like that. So I don't know. Darren Till's out here writing poems on Twitter to Ben Askren, and then finishing with a line about how Ben Askren's chin is too big not to miss. Well, that one we probably needed better editing there. Yeah, one more one more workshop. I mean, I, I guess I would watch Ben Askren versus like Rafael dos Anjos or something, but yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't say that one's going to generate uh, more light than heat. I think. Yeah. All right, let's do our uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, we got a joint Just Saying Stuff this week. We didn't want to get through this entire show without mentioning UFC Fight Night 146 coming our way from Wichita. The Interest Bank Arena. This Saturday, March 9th. Main event here, Derek Lewis versus Junior Dos Santos. I guess I'm just saying nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I'm just saying you put it on ESPN Plus on an online stream, and maybe you speed the pace up a little bit so that I don't have to wait all night long in order to get to the the pudding at the bottom of the pie kind of thing. Derek Lewis versus Junior Dos Santos. Don't do the thing to me. This is what I'm just saying. Don't do the thing to me where you put together a fight that looks like two guys are going to have an exciting slugfest that's not going to last long, and then in some bizarre fashion they end up doing the exact opposite of that. Don't, don't do that. I doubt it. I can't me, see these two guys staring at each other for 15 minutes. Well, I couldn't see Francis Ngannou and Derek Lewis staring at each other for 15 minutes either, and yet that's what happened. That's true. Don't that's true. give me all I'm saying. Give me exactly what this looks like. That's what I want. Just saying. Just saying. All right, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back on Wednesday for the live chat and road agents, and then back again on Friday for the co-main event podcast power hour. We implore you to join us for those things. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I mean, Francis and Gotham, we had some, some things on his mind. We're all going through some stuff, Jeff. Everybody's fighting pretty bad. Junior Dos Santos. If there's some things happening. Aside from 15 minutes, I can throw them things. I just hope Derek Lewis is taking advantage of Popeye's problems. We need to get an update on that. He knows he's not going to be able to show up for media obligations. Question out of the shoe, Derek. Derek, did you get the card? Did you pick the card up? Derek, what's the status of the card? Is the card operational, Derek? <laughs>